Good evening, everybody. I'd like to welcome you once again to Mormonism Live. Right now, I'm the only person showing on this screen. I'm not exactly sure why. There we go. Hey. There's somebody else. And as the um, the observant among you will notice, that is not Bill Real. This is someone else entirely. In fact, we have a name underneath it. It's Jonathan Streeter. Jonathan Streeter, uh, how did, are you doing? Did you have you didn't have to read that name to figure out who I was? We, we've been was talking that, about this all week. Yes, we have. We have been talking about this all week. Bill Real could not be here tonight because of another engagement that he had. His dad's in town. I think he's taking him back to the airport this evening. I found out last Sunday from Bill that that was the case. He regrettably was not going to be able to be here. He suggested maybe I I don't know I could scout around see if I could find somebody else to fill his <laughs> shoes, and I immediately thought of Jonathan Streeter, because Jonathan Streeter also goes by thinker of thoughts and stuff. Mm -hmm. It's not thinker of things and stuff. <laughs> on YouTube, it's thinker of thoughts. Uh, the blog as it exists is thoughts on things and stuff. And there's a Facebook page for thoughts on things and stuff. Okay, that's uh, why I was confused. <laughs> well, I was elated to get your call because uh, I listened to your last episode where you were talking about the grand uh, landscape of miracles in Mormonism as depicted by, uh, you know, the Blessed Elder Bednar. And uh, you know, anytime I hear anyone talk about Mormon miracles, then the question immediately comes to my mind. Well, what was the first miracle of the Restoration? Because it's mm. such a kind of a dramatic lead in and then it has such a remarkable answer. But before we get to that, there was some uh, introductory stuff that you wanted to get through. And then we're going to dive right into that. There actually was there's some uh, last week we did talk about Elder Bednar's uh, discussion of miracles and the eight statements he made. We had some wonderful comments from listeners. I was going to go into those now. I'm going to have to save those for next week because actually okay. there's so much stuff and research <laughs> that Jonathan has done on this subject in the last, I think, like three days, the time you've had <laughs> to prepare. And he's done it extensively. He's amazing. And no, no, he's, no. Don't, don't talk it up too much. Hold on. <laughs> okay. He's, he's competent. Okay. John's so, adequate. So, um, so well, let's continue this thing. So, so the title, if I was going to title, I got to say, yes, what the if, title is. Okay, go ahead. This is this is dueling hosts. You see, I'm used to doing Radio Free Mormon, where I'm the show, and Jonathan mm -hmm. Streeter's used to doing Thinker of Thoughts and stuff, where he's the show. And now we both think that we have to be the entire show, and yes. only one of us is right. No, we have to be able to. <laughs> This podcast isn't big enough for the both of us, Jonathan. Mm, the title yeah. of tonight's podcast is, don't tell me, Demonic Possession, Exorcism, and Mormonism. So we're going to be talking about very interesting things and uh, as they relate specifically mm -hmm. to Mormonism because the title of the show is Mormonism Live. Now, uh, you've done a lot of research. You've done some about the background of exorcism and demonic possession in Christianity, well, which you wanted to give a thumbnail <laughs> discussion of. Yeah, well, I think I don't want to take really any credit for this because like a lot of content producers, all we do is kind of collect stuff together and then put it out in this new format that is these podcasts. And really a lot of this information, I want to immediately give credit to a couple of people. So there is a podcast by the uh, Maxwell Institute of all people um, that came out, uh, I think, Chris or uh, Halloween of uh, last year or a couple of years ago. And it's called Mormonism Exorcism Lore, and it's mainly an exposition in kind of a dramatic style of stories of Mormon exorcism as collected by Professor Stephen Taysom, who mm -hmm. is a scholar of uh, religion. And um, what we'll do is in the show notes, we'll put some links to these things so that you can see them. Uh, 
Stephen Taysom has, has put together an article that was published in one of uh, the uh, sociology journals about religion, where he kind of outlined the background of the concept of exorcism in Mormonism. Um, and that is the answer to that remarkable question of what was the first miracle of the Restoration and the answer in the words I know of Joseph it, I mean, Smith can himself. I tell you what it is? Joseph Smith, what is turning, it? Joseph Smith turning water into wine. No, that's the first miracle no. of Jesus's ministry. I'm sorry. No, no, well, no. Yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> It's, it's, um, it's, a, it's I actually, you, an, an, <laughs> you did. That's okay. It's an exorcism. Um, and so when I first learned that, I'm like, wait a second, you know, the exorcist, that's like a movie. That's like a Catholic thing. Mormons don't have this concept of exorcism. Well, when you go back and you study the history, particularly understanding that the origin of Mormonism is steeped in folk mysticism, spiritualism, um, much of which is derived from Catholic mysticism that came over with the colonies from Europe. And, um, and so it's always just really interesting to dive into that. And so I spent some time going through both that podcast and the article by Stephen Taysom. And I think it's important when we get to that point where we're going to listen to an account of that first miracle, just to understand a little bit of the context. Now, when you observe or study uh, exorcism itself, um, there's always this question of like, is it real? Do the participants believe or is it fake? And there's a, a confederate involved in it. And when sociologists study this, they don't really get too much into the details of any of that. What they look more at is what is the context of that moment in history and time? Mm -hmm. What did this this performance mean to the people involved. And that is with, you know, these people carry some assumptions based on their cultural milieu about number one, whether or not the devil and demons or spirits, evil spirits, whether they exist and whether they can actually take possession or have influence over you as an individual, and then who it is that might have the power to solve or cure that situation. And he does a brilliant job in the beginning of just stepping you through three main facets of what would have informed Joseph Smith and his audience, the people who were captivated by his performance of exorcism. And he starts out with one that you'll find common to any tradition in the uh, Christian realm that uh, speaks about exorcism, and that is the story contained in the scriptures themselves, specifically Jesus in the New Testament, in the Synoptic Gospels, um, he points out that there's something like over 50 different references of Christ interacting with spirits in, uh, in a way that directly speaks to this concept of possession, the presence of demons, and having power over them as uh, the Christ figure. And uh, I mean, you can probably name some off the top of your head of scriptural stories regarding Jesus and demons and possession. What are the ones that, that my come name to your is Legion, for we are many. That's that's the one that immediately comes to my mind. And specifically, there, oh, sorry, there's this other one. There is no Dana. There is only Zul. No. <laughs> But that would be more, one of the more there, recent, it? yeah, it, it's maybe, I don't know, in the book, <laughs> book of Zemeckis or something or whoever it was that did that. Um, but that's the one that comes to my mind. I remember when I was growing up and there's that, I think it was like 1970s, uh, The Life of Jesus movie. And there's like this really bearded guy that pops out and uh, Jesus commands the demons to leave them and they want to go into the swine. And so that is where you see that not only can 
more than one spirit inhabit a body, but it can also go into the body of animals. And that there's something about the figure of Christ being able to command those things that becomes important. Right. The Gadarene swine, as I recall them. Yeah. Yeah. I'm seriously. They're in the Gadarene yeah. region of Galilee, probably right next to the Sea of Galilee, since they run off a cliff and into the Sea of Galilee and drown. You have much more geographic knowledge about this than me. Well, yeah, the pigs do. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Which somebody else observed, because like, then the farmers were mad at them. Hey, you got our herds. But then somebody else is like, well, I thought that Jewish people didn't eat pork, so I don't know why they'd be farming that. But I don't know any, anything well, about they're that. They're farming them to sell to the Romans. Oh, okay. Well, that would make sense then. Um the, you know, there's another story of a woman coming to Jesus and saying, you know, my, my daughter is possessed of the devil and he really doesn't want to deal with it. And then eventually he says, okay, okay, your faith is healed. Go back. They'll be okay. There's, there's just several different instances where you'll see that. So the fact that they are in, uh, you know, 18th century America in this time where those scriptural stories inform their worldview is very important because Joseph Smith is able to draw on that because every one of those interactions teaches you about the rules of demonic possession and the rules of what it takes to cast it out. It's almost like a script. And there's a very famous one, of course, when Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration and he finds his apostles having all this trouble casting the devil or the demons out of a certain person, right? And Tell me uh, more. Oh, really? You don't know this? You never studied? I, I, well, no. <laughs> no, anyway. Early morning the, seminary was tough for me. But the rule is, you see, because they couldn't cast him out. So Jesus says, this kind cometh not out but by prayer and fasting, mm. remember? And then Jesus is able to cast the demon out. So one of those rules is um, right. prayer and fasting if it's a really big demon or a difficult one to right. exercise. No, and that's brilliant. That's the type of um, model where the scriptural story informs you about the rules regarding the, you know, the paradigm of casting demons out. And I think um, since so that time that got modified to, uh, we need to use the name of Jesus to cast mm -hmm. out demons. And I, and I think also um, when you, it depends on which snapshot, which story in the scriptures that you use and you'll find, and he, he goes over a little bit uh, when you take then the different moments in uh, both Catholic as well as Protestant eras and then evan evangelical, um, each of them kind of latch on to different aspects of this and it informs really how they treat this whole concept of possession. Yes. Um, but the first pillar then is the scriptures. And then the second pillar is, and again, these are pillars that inform Joseph Smith's eventual performance and, and treatment of diabolism or, you know, demonology. And that is the Catholic Church itself. Mm -hmm. And he spent some time going into the history of after the Gospels, um, and in the early centuries of the Catholic Church, it really wasn't that a church official had to actually perform the um, the the casting out. It was that people could do so with a lot more freedom just based on invoking Christ. And so there were a lot of just kind of, uh, I don't know, maverick exorcists who were doing it. And um, at some point in the 16th century or, or so, the Roman Catholic Church kind of consolidated power in itself to perform it. It published uh, the first um, official, I think, uh, I ritual name, of exorcism. That's exact. The ritual Romanus um, that specifically detailed um, how to diagnose 
a possession because it didn't want to say that everything was possession and then who it was that could actually perform the rites and rituals that would go along with it. And what that ended up doing is centralizing power in the Catholic Church. And it was just another bit of the ornate ritual and liturgy that eventually would kind of bristle with um, the Protestants. Once they broke away from Catholicism, they started to see um, exorcism in addition to certain consecrations and ordinances that the Catholic Church had. They just, they felt like all those things were just making things so complicated. They got in between the individual and the Christ figure and, and their relationship with God. And so they were kind of dismissed. But because those things existed in the Catholic tradition, they informed Joseph Smith about how the he interacted with with possessed people or the the demons or evil spirits that possessed them and and some of the ways that he was informed by was kind of you know the people who are possessed are sort of acting according to a script the people who are possessed act a certain way and those ways were kind of given a very strict or or legitimate codification by how do you diagnose someone who's possessed well it they have to show feats of uh, supernatural strength they'll have to perhaps talk in a language that there's no way the person would know um, or speak in tongues or they w- may prophesy and tell things either distant in the future or um, distant by location that there's no way they could have known and so all of those things inform just they were in the air, much like a lot of the folk magic and religious tradition that um, that Joseph drew on, and they um, would then be reflected in the people who participated in these exorcism things. And you could you could look at it two ways. You could say, okay, if these are Confederates, where they you know Joseph said, let's do this, and it'll prove my power, then you could say that the Confederates are performing in a way that they know their audience would understand because it's just in the air. It's what the audience would expect. Or if the person himself was. Um, had the 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 belief that he was possessed, his performance, regardless of how the psychology worked into it, would reflect the prevalent understanding of what it meant to be possessed. And so all of those things should be understood when you're hearing these depictions. Does that make sense? Right. Oh, yeah, I got it. Totally. Yeah. I, I think you've explained it very well. The thing interesting to me about Mormonism is that nowadays, you know, we don't have a ritual of exorcism. We definitely have a ritual of healing. But we don't have a ritual of exorcism and we don't talk about it a lot. We don't hear about it a lot in church manuals or in general conference. And I think that that may have something to do with the fact that church history is now told in the dominant narrative, what is told by the church to the members Mm. in a way that basically has kind of obliterated almost, well, pretty much all of the exorcisms, which were quite prevalent. And indeed, the first miracle of the church was an exorcism. By the way, when we say the first miracle of the church, that's what Joseph Smith called it when he wrote the 1838 church history. So the church is organized April of 1830. The following month, there is something very astonishing that happens with Newell Knight, right? Is it Newell Knight or Newell Whitney? Yeah. I always Uh, get those Newells confused. Yeah, I think think it's Newell Knight. Or is it Newell Post? Okay, well, anyway. it's, It's Newell Knight. Yeah, and he gets possessed. And so, well, our- you know, let, let's finish the last of this thing and then let's go right into that story because it's okay. so remarkable. Okay. So, um, so we have the Catholic part of it. And then now you've got the kind of uh, New England area, um, post colonial um, Protestant tradition, which went through a couple of iterations getting to that point, including, you know, immediately in the um, Protestant realm where they kind of were sh- kind of put the whole exorcism thing aside. And, and even though officially the, uh, I think it's like the Anglican church and some 
of these other uh, Protestant churches like d- dismiss that still the people living in day-to-day life would still see the work of demons in their lives. And so even though church officials tried to minimize it, it was still prevalent just in the folk traditions of the day. And um, and then you go into uh, America and the in the New England time, and there's that um, the Great Awakening and the revivalism and this concept that, you know, people are connecting in a much more emotional way where they're having personal relationship with God. They're feeling a call on them to uh, to connect with God. And it's much more personal and emotional. And just as much as that connection with God is increased, it kind of increases then the, the presence of the devil or Satan or the opposing forces to try to interfere with that personal relationship in the realm of feeling and emotion. And it's much more of a call to the possibility of possession. And so it kind of enters and becomes a little bit more prevalent. And at this time, though, you have the counteracting force of the cessationist movement, where it's the idea that miracles and things like that are for scriptural times and the heavens are closed. And this becomes something of a contending factor for Joseph Smith, this young boy who's claiming that not only are the heavens not closed, but God is communing with man face to face. And the the opposite side of that, because there's this concept of opposition in all things, is that it opens up men to being influenced again by these miraculous uh, demonic relations as well. And there's one, uh, I think for me, all of this is summarized so well in a paragraph that um, that he puts, and let me just draw that up and then we'll get right into this performance, which is, um, ah, okay, here we go. I'm going to just put this on the screen, which is that it was into this world of mainstream evangelical retreat from a strong belief in the physical power of the devil to possess human bodies that Mormonism was born. Joseph Smith not only disagreed with the dominant ev- evangelical view of possession and exorcism, he used their stance as a foil for his argument that Protestant rejection of exorcism was part of the larger problem of relegating miracles to the past. In Mormon belief, any attempt by Protestants to deny the modern presence of the promised biblical signs that would follow the true followers of Christ, including exorcism, signaled a state of Christian apostasy. Smith, therefore, flatly rejected the belief that the devil lacked the power to physically afflict, much less possess human beings. So I think that sums it up really, uh, really well. Okay, so now before we get to that, (laughs) I love delaying things even further. Before we get to that (laughs) new night one, there was an earlier possession, but it perhaps was not cured by an exorcism per se, what would what would the earliest possession in the life of Joseph Smith probably be? Um, what do you think? Himself? What do you mean? First vision? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, and you could say, what? How is that a possession? Well, let's just take a look at how the church depicts this particular event. You can oh, go and Before to, you get there, before you get yeah. there, on Joseph Smith's side is uh, Mark chapter 16, verse 7. And these signs shall follow them that believe in my name shall they cast out devils. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, you know, there's both the biblical and then there's a modern revelation thing that's basically says these are the miracles that are going to go along with that. So if we bring this in now boop, to where we have this is uh, if you go to the church history library, they have this cool 360 display of, of the first vision where they've taken all the details from the, the accounts and bring them into the most comprehensive view. And this is what they are depicting now. It was the first time in my life that I had made the attempt to pray vocally. Oh, God. Immediately, I was seized upon by some power which entirely overcame me and had such astonishing influence over me as to bind my tongue so I could not speak. 
my mind filled with doubts and all manner of inappropriate images. It seemed to me for a time as if I were doomed to sudden destruction, but exerting all my powers to call upon God to deliver me. Lord! My mouth was open. Have mercy on me. And my tongue liberated. Forgive me. Father Marin, and and it's pretty dramatic. I mean, when you're when you go and you sit in that theater and you experience that, and you can hear all the ambient sounds and everything, it's it's really uh, breathtaking. But what he's describing there is an evil spirit binding his tongue, having a, a direct effect over his body, clouding his mind, inserting visions into his mind of of evil things, inappropriate images, whatever the heck that's supposed to mean. It was the imagination his, reels. Sister <laughs> Agatha's n- ankle or something. <laughs> anyway, um, but anyway, it's pretty dramatic. And so, but that would have been in the mode of possession. And in this case, though, much like the people in biblical times, the demon is removed when he calls upon the name of Christ and then Christ actually visits in the form of the first vision. So that is going to be our first really entry into the world of, of diabolism here. And historically speaking, historically speaking, we have to acknowledge the fact that this is something that was said to have happened in 1820, but it wasn't related that way until 1838 after two other versions that didn't really have that detail in it. So possibly, possibly, this is something that was retro retrofitted from 1838 yeah. to the story that was to have happened in 1820. So maybe, yeah. maybe this first miracle of the church, by the way, it's called the first miracle of the church because it's the first miracle that's related after the church was organized. Was so, yeah. 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 So you I'm could still certainly going, say I'm this is so, miraculous. <laughs> yes. So, so if that's uh, the first miracle, the first miracle is an exorcism. If the first miracle of the church is the first miracle, the first miracle is an exorcism. Yes. Absolutely. And so the, and it's important also in the context, like you were saying that this happened, um, if you go back at that time, Joseph Smith's first vision followed the pattern of theophanies, and you can find several written accounts of people interacting with God, and a handful of them also are preceded by a dark presence that overtakes them in the same pattern that they have there. So not only was the theophany, the visitation, the first vision, preceded by other similar stories, um, but that aspect of it was as well. And again, that just speaks, go ahead. I'm, just, I'm sorry. I'm just betting you're getting ready to go with this story with uh, New Old Night. But yes. the thing that fascinated me about the story, I remembered this story because I read it for the first time when I saw my mission. And I thought, wow, that's cool. The first miracle in the church is this guy getting possessed and Joseph Smith throwing. And there's some details in here that are really interesting as well. But when I reread it for uh, this program, the thing that really struck me was how it's related in such a way as it's like Joseph Smith's first vision, except God doesn't appear to release him from bondage. Who does appear? We'll find out. Okay, so in that podcast I referred to at the beginning of this episode, they do this really great uh, dramatic reenactment of some of these, and I'm just totally going to swipe them for fair use. So again, I'm doing this in the hopes that you'll go back and watch that podcast. It's phenomenal. Listen to it. Uh, But here we go. This is the account of Newell Knight as depicted in that podcast. Let me make sure you can hear it. Give me a thumbs up uh, if you can, RFM, when it happens. legally organized, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Joseph Smith was the 24-year-old founder and prophet of the church, and he quickly learned that there is, indeed, opposition in all things. He found himself in a showdown with the devil. 
Here's the story as he tells it in the history of the church. During this month of April, I, Joseph Smith, went on a visit to the residence of Mr. Joseph Knight. Mr. Knight and his family were universalists, but were willing to reason with me upon my religious views and were, as usual, friendly and hospitable. We held several meetings in the neighborhood. Among those who attended our meetings regularly was Newell Knight, son of Joseph Knight. He and I had many serious conversations on the important subject of man's eternal salvation. We were in the habit of praying much at our meetings, and Newell had said that he would try and take up his cross and pray vocally during meeting. But when we again met together, he rather excused himself, and so he would wait until he should get into the woods by himself, and there he would pray. Accordingly, he deferred praying until next morning. Did you have something, RFM, you wanted to add? No, no, no. Sometimes I make these little little gestures, which you're like, oh, that did sound like the first vision, but I didn't mean to interrupt. Okay, so, well, that's a so, good point. That is, that's marking that point where it does seem similar to the first vision. Yes, and now he's going to go to the grove to pray because he can't seem to bring himself to pray with uh, the other people. Oh, vocally, oh, right? Yeah. When he retired into the woods where, according to his own account afterwards, he made several attempts to pray, but could scarcely do so, feeling that he had not done his duty, but that he should have prayed in the presence of others. He began to feel uneasy and continued to feel worse both in mind and body until, upon reaching his own house, his appearance alarmed his wife very much. He requested her to go and bring me to him. I went and found him suffering very much in his mind, and his body being acted upon in a very strange manner, his visage and limbs distorted and twisted in every shape and appearance possible to imagine, and finally he was caught up off the floor of the apartment and tossed about most fearfully. After he had thus suffered for a time, I succeeded in getting hold of him by the hand, when almost immediately he spoke to me, and with very great earnestness requested of me that I should cast the devil out of him, saying that he knew he was in him, and that he also knew that I could cast him out. I replied, If you know that I can, it shall be done. And then, almost unconsciously, I rebuked the devil, and commanded him in the name of Jesus Christ to depart from him, when immediately Newell spoke out and said that he saw the devil leave him and vanish from his sight. The scene was now entirely changed, for as soon as the devil had departed from our friend, his countenance became natural, his distortions of body ceased, and almost immediately the Spirit of the Lord descended upon him, and the visions of eternity were opened to his view. He afterwards related his experience as follows. Now notice this part. Notice this part, where all of a sudden it shifts now from Joseph Smith's recounting, I think, to Mm -hmm. Newell Knight's recounting, and Newell Knight adds this incredible detail that I think is missing from Joseph Smith's version. Yeah, and I, on top of that, I think the part where it says that um, as soon as the devil had departed from him, um, the visions of eternity were open to his view. And that's kind of the same mode as the first vision, as you were right. commenting on You're before. Right. So point. now the part is, instead of hearing Joseph Smith recount it in his history, we're now going to hear the words of Newell Knight recounting what he experienced. I began right. to feel a most pleasing sensation resting upon me, and immediately the visions of heaven were open to my view. I felt myself attracted upward, and remained for some time enwrapped in contemplation, insomuch that I knew not what was going on in the room. By and by I felt some weight pressing upon my shoulder and the side of my head, which served to recall me to a sense of my situation, and I found that the Spirit of the Lord had actually caught me up off the floor, and that my shoulder and head were pressing against the beams. All this was witnessed by many to their great astonishment and satisfaction when they saw the devil thus cast out and the power of God and his Holy Spirit thus made manifest. So soon as consciousness returned, his bodily weakness was such that we were obliged to lay him upon his bed and wait upon him for some time. Okay, that's the end of that account. Now, it's interesting when you're hearing him talk about how his head, I guess he bumped against the beams in the ceiling. Now, immediately, the the 
imagery from the movie The Exorcist comes to mind where, you know, the, the girl is like floating above the bed, but that's the demon doing it. In this account, it's actually the Spirit of God that is elevating him. And if you if you take the timeline, there's a bunch of neighbors watching this. It's a performance in front of people. And so it would be interesting to see if other people corroborated that. But to my knowledge, no one else said, oh, yeah, he was floating in the air. I saw it with my own eyes, but it, I could it would be wrong. Be a, it would be a very remarkable part of this whole experience. And yet I find it equally as remarkable that Joseph Smith is recounting the experience. He was present and he doesn't mention the floating afterward. That but is then, true. But then again, Joseph Smith leaves out other minor details like, you know, God, the father appearing with Jesus Christ in the first vision. Yeah. It, it actually adds credibility to the story. So anyway, um, <laughs> so, so, but when you look at this story, though, you mentioned before how um, Mormonism doesn't have a ritual for exorcism. So I think there's something to talk about with that. Number one, you know, Mormons are very specific about what you call things. So spiritual wifery is not what they're doing. They're doing polygamy, which is spiritual wifery with the prophet's endorsement. It's a very technical different. So exorcism is a Catholic ritual. So this is in the writings of Bruce R. McConkie. When you look at the Mormon doctrine and look up uh, exorcism, he'll say, we don't do exorcism. That's a Catholic ritual. And it's almost like how much of complicated spiritual uh, ritualistic things in Catholicism, Mormonism just dumbs it down, makes it simple for the everyday guy, you know. Yes. And in in essence, you you go from all of these things that you have to prepare and do and get authorization for in Catholic exorcism to the Mormon pattern, which is you have the priesthood, you raise your hand, you invoke the name of Christ, and you cast the demons out, and that's it. And it's it's simple, it's and maybe accessible. The priesthood. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it's so it's almost now just ubiquitous. Anyone can do it. And we'll we're going to see how this changes over time, but initially, just like Joseph taught, you know, everybody is a prophet, but then later they have to kind of partition that out in a little bit. Early on, anyone that can invoke the name of Christ, it's the name of Christ itself which holds power over the demons. And your connection, your your presence as somebody who is aligned with Christ um, kind of gives you that ability. Uh, and we see this in Newell Knight's story himself. Just uh, like two months after this, he's staying with his aunt and uncle, and his aunt then comes down with this experience of being possessed of a devil. And she asks him to cast the devil out of her. She thinks that she's going to basically offer a, a sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice for their generation in the pattern of Christ. He informs her that, no, that's a deceptive lie from a devil. And he does exactly what Joseph Smith did in terms of laying his hands on her invoking the name of Christ and casting the devil out. So the performance that Joseph did informed how this practice then entered into the culture of the early saints, who again are just coming out of a, a culture which has this kind of underlying belief in the reality of personal devils and demons that can inhabit your body. Now, um, <clears throat> Let's see, before we, I guess, so when we talk about that, when we talk about that these thing is, this thing is happening in a cultural milieu where people already have it, there are communities in the early church who, before the church even arrives, already have a tradition of some of these spiritual practices that are mentioned in the Bible and continue to persist in American culture despite certain religious factions saying, no, 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 those miracles have ceased, those blessings have ceased. Uh, one of them is the Pomfret branch in New York. And 
this is a community where people are already claiming to have the gift of tongues as in terms of as it was t- considered at that time, glossolalia, speaking in tongues, already having visitations of angelic beings. In the case of uh, the person who will hear the account of, he, uh, his grandfather predicted and prophesied the time of his death. And according to the family lore, it came true exactly. Uh, the other father was visited by a spiritual being that said, don't join any church because the real church is going to be restored. And lo and behold, Joseph Smith and the church arrived. But those experiences pale in comparison to an account which included the signature of several witnesses of it, and we'll move to that one next. All right, so here we go. Let me... Consider another Mormon exorcism story, the Pomfret Branch in New York. You see, Joseph Smith was not the only Mormon exorcist at work in the 1830s. In 1839, the same year that Joseph Smith recorded his exorcism of night for his official history, a newly baptized Latter-day Saint named Benjamin Brown participated in a very dramatic series of exorcisms. Benjamin recorded an affidavit, complete with the signatures of other witnesses to the event, of a startling battle with dark forces. Here's Benjamin's affidavit. On this day passed a marvelous scene before the elders of Israel. We were called to cast out devils which had entered Sister Crosby. After praying and fasting 17 hours, by the power of the Holy Ghost, one was cast out, which was seen and felt, for he attacked all of us, shook me on the side and in the face, seized Brother Moore on the arms, which made them sore for some time. The devil was seen in the room, and at length he entered into Brother Melvin with such power that it seemed as he would be pressed to death. He could not speak, but made signs. We laid hands on him and cast it out in the name of Jesus Christ. When he came out, he came snarling like a dog. We cast out 37 in a variety of forms and noises, some like dogs, cats, hogs, pigs, and snakes. These were seen and heard by many of the saints, and the room became darkened like a mist, and the smell was like brimstone but more filthy. It affected our eyes so that we had to wash them. Also our mouths much affected. Some heard noise like thunder and saw lightning. Some were punched in the face, others in the arms, others heard him gnash with his teeth. So this was many witnesses, both men and women, in the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so it's a dramatic scene. You you miss out one detail in that telling. And first they talk about casting the spirit out of one person, and it came out and there was a sound snarling like a dog. And then it's the next day where they have much more manifestations of these spirits in, in multiple people. And when they come out, suddenly there's a litany of animals that um, um, were involved in it. And so uh, I think that is a phenomenon that you're going to see if, I I don't know if we'll have the time to go into it, but you can examine how this principle of exorcism is being played out in certain areas of the world now, uh, in areas where there is a strong tradition of demonic possession already. And so people who are focused on this will, you know, capture that audience. But you can see where these performances then create a pattern where subsequent performances start to reflect the same thing. You know, people who either consciously or subconsciously act out the part of the possessed have a script to follow and it's informed by what is being you know previously done in this area um you know um not to throw you off but at the end of the exorcist i mean they're talking in the story about the devil being cast out and jumping from person to person Mm. like the end of the movie where the the demon uh jumps from linda blair to father karis Mm-hmm. right before he leaps out the window. And I honestly think I, I'm not an absolute expert on the movie, the exorcist, but I think that in those noises that that demonically possessed young girl 
makes. I think there's animal noises too at places in probably. The yeah, I think I there would, are. I would. I'm pretty sure the foley artist was putting that stuff in. Oh yeah. Uh, but it's interesting because when you go and we'll talk about it in a little bit, and you examine these modern day possessions that are on YouTube, frequently they will invoke the spirit of certain animals. And it's kind of just a type and a pattern that may be localized to a particular area where they attribute more spiritual uh, beings, even uh, ethereal spiritual beings, to animal form. And it's just what they're informed by by their uh, by their culture. Yeah, it's okay. sort of the connection with the pigs in the New Testament. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, exactly. So uh, next we have a story that is a little bit further on in church history. So now we've got the churches in Utah uh, polygamy is a thing. The nation knows about it. They're under a great deal of scrutiny about it. Elders are going out. You know, I'm sure you've heard those stories where the elders go out, they meet a cute uh, chick who gets converted, and then they bring them back and marry them or something. Then some of the people no, back no, no, home no. complain. No, they marry them. Then they bring them. Oh, they marry them. Then they send it back. Okay. The order is very important there. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, well, um, that's what got Heber C. Kimball so upset, I think. Yes. Well, we get a story that takes place in that backdrop, uh, and it reflects uh, perhaps what happens when you have people who come from a non Mormon tradition that includes things like women being able to prophesy. Um, and when that then collides with the very male priesthood authority centric uh, culture of Mormonism, and then how Mormon de how Mormonism deals with that. But uh, this is a story uh, about a woman in the southern states who is possessed. So let's take a listen. Yes. And speaking of elders, Mormon missionaries were far more likely than other church members to report cases of possession and exorcism. In 1888, a Mormon woman in the Southern States Mission requested a visit from the missionaries. She was possessed by a devil and asked them to help by the laying on of hands. They were happy to comply, and the evil spirit was summarily dismissed. Things were following the typical script, or more accurately, they were helping to write the Mormon script. Variations on a theme. Exorcism, particularly if you look at the European context, the Catholic context, everybody in the performance agrees on what the script is. Okay, so there's a script for how possessed people behave and there's a script for how the dispossession is going to be carried out. In the Mormon context, particularly in the early years where they're getting converts, the script for how to be possessed isn't fixed. So it shifts all the time. And so she's bringing with her whatever her background was about what being possessed meant. And so she's performing these oracular functions. She claims she could see the future and she was initially telling them things like they you know if you if you cross this footbridge you're going to fall off and hurt yourself and they didn't they didn't listen to her they fell off and you know one of them fell off and hurt his leg uh, and then she would predict things about you know a child would be sick and then get better and, and so she had this kind of reputation as this oracular kind of priestess a priestess in mormonism only men have been ordained to the priesthood but early lds women were known to speak prophecies and speak in tongues even bless and heal the sick by the laying on of hands so even here she was following what Taysom calls the script but then she went off script she told the elders that she was receiving divine revelations in their behalf but then she starts talking about uh, how one of them is going to take her as a plural wife of course this was during the period when polygamy was still being practiced, and it wasn't unheard of for missionaries to bring back wives. Their main concern when they heard about this, though, was how to get her back without running afoul of the law, because this was during the period of the raid, where, you know, polygamists... It's not about whether they should marry or just how to get her back. 
And so they wrote a letter. You know, they had the audacity to write a letter to Wilford Woodruff and ask him what they ought to do and Wilford, you know, how to get her back because she said one of them was going to marry her. And so they had to sort of figure out a way to get her back. Uh, they acted like they didn't have much choice. Uh, so Woodruff was not pleased with this. And instead of replying to them, wrote back to the mission president, basically asking him what kind of a circus he was allowing to <laughs> be run down there. Yeah, he said to, quote, give them a severe rebuke. Yeah. So the mission president paid him a visit and, in fact, rebuked them. Uh, and then at that point is when he's decided, the mission president, that she must have been possessed at some point. He said, well, they exercised her once, but then evil spirits must have come back. Mm. And uh, that's what accounted for her supernatural abilities and also for her desire to attach herself to these missionaries. You see, there was one more catch to this story. She was actually married and had three or four children. So <laughs> there we see kind of, um, I, I think they go on and they point out how this is almost an inverse of that classic Mormon trope of... The spirit is telling me that you're going to be my bride. Yes, my <laughs> you know, wife. When you, you my, yeah, my wife. My girl, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, a, a off-repeated refrain on the campus of BYU when you um, happen to to snatch a date with the, you know, the girl that everybody's going after. If you can just slip that in there, then, you know, what, is she going to deny the spirit? But this is the inverse of that, where now you have the woman saying that, you know, and if you read the the account itself, the woman actually was expounding on the principle of polygamy, saying it was a divine principle and and teaching the elders themselves about this thing. And, and then as part of that was this, uh, you know, one of y'all are going to take me on as a plural wife. And, oh, and I happen to already be married. You know, you figure that they would have learned from the Parley P. Pratt affair and, and all of that. But no. Um but what does this tell us, though, yeah. about this, um, you know, I think, so first of all, it's almost like an afterthought at first. Oh, this woman's, this woman's possessed. We're going to cast this, the evil spirit out of her. So the, the kind of almost mundaneness of how it first enters the story reminds me of something that you mentioned that I have no context for, which is the idea that there are possession stories all over Mormon missions. Like, this is just like common stuff for Mormon missionaries. Is that your experience? Oh, yeah. And so that's the other thing, because you're talking about um, what, what was it? And I made a note here about the mission field. Um, the church doesn't talk about exorcisms and you're not taught about it, but you hear about it all the time when you're a missionary. And I don't think I'm the only one. I'm over there in Japan for crying out loud. But yeah, there's all these stories about the exorcisms and the missionary who comes home after a bad day and goes into the bathroom and confronts Satan and yells at him. And then he disappears and there's a bloody mess on the ceiling when his companion comes to see why he hasn't come out for dinner. You know, uh, seriously, I mean, that's the story. That's a thing? That's a total thing. That's a total thing. That's, is, that, is that unique to Japan? Because you did your mission in Japan. Wait, where did you do your mission? Yeah. But these are American missionaries. So oh, I think okay. this is okay. everywhere. There's everywhere. There's three Nephite stories. There's all there's uh, but there's demonic possession stories everywhere in the mission field. And anybody else uh, uh, who wants to comment about that or has heard about it, you let me know. I doubt that there's going to be very many missionaries who went for two years on their mission and never heard anything about any kind of possession or exorcism. Well, it's funny because I mentioned that I'm doing this podcast to my brother who still attends and believes he's a, you know, good TBM. And he's like, oh, yeah, on my mission, uh, you know, there was this thing where the elders were asked by a member to come and cast some evil spirits out. And they asked permission of the the mission president. And he said, no, 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 you can't do that because it's not 
it's not there's not it's not that there's keys and that's true there's no keys that are specific to casting evil spirits out uh, his answer was you you weren't called to do that you're here on the mission field for proselytizing you're not here for casting spirits out and we're going to just put this up the line so he didn't know what eventually happened about it but uh his experience was that you know in his area of Guatemala that a lot of people, you know, had this concept and, and interacted with the elders on it. So it's very fascinating. Mission president sounds like a real party pooper. (laughs) Okay. So we are moving closer to the modern era. Oh, great. This this last, um, well, it's not the last one, actually. Can I say something here? Next Uh, one, please do. uh, I'm going to be jumping. Actually, I'm not jumping ahead right now. We're still in the modern era. The ritual association with casting out demons is not only to say the name of Jesus and to probably invoke the priesthood, but, excuse me, there you go. Mm, You raise your right arm to the square. That is part of it. And I think that comes from the temple endowment when Peter, James, and John are casting Satan out. I think you're absolutely right. And, um, or at least it's represented there if it doesn't come from there. That's the earliest form of it that I'm aware of because this whole idea. And once again, we're talking about the endowment that we have today and that, you know, uh, Mormons go to the temple and they participate in the endowment on a regular basis if they're good Mormons. And, um, a centerpiece of the endowment is the casting of Satan out of the Garden of Eden by those who are the priesthood and raising the, the right hand to the square. Yeah, you know, there's. I'm. I think it's worthwhile taking a moment to look at that snapshot. Now, you and I, or you mentioned that there's no official manual that tells you how to uh, cast devils out. But what we do have is we have that performance in the temple, which yeah. is a visual depiction of how to how to dispense with demons. Yes. And so let's take a look because this is no longer part of the temple ceremony itself. Therefore, it is not a sacred, uh, unrevealable part of it. And the church is frankly being much more open and transparent about what goes on in the temple. Um, so what we do have is a, a visual depiction, uh, courtesy of New Name Noah. I voice and hid myself because I was naked. Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou partaken of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Oh, there's somebody there. There's Woman thou gavest me, and commanded that she should remain with me. She gave me of the fruit of the tree, and I did eat. Eve, what is this thou hast done? The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. Lucifer. Enter Michael Balaam. What hast thou been doing here? I have been doing that which has been done in other worlds. What is that? I have been giving some of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil to them. Lucifer, because thou hast done this, thou shalt be cursed above all the beasts of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust thou shalt eat all the days of thy life. If thou cursest me for doing the same thing which has been done in other worlds, I will take the spirits that follow me, and they shall possess the bodies thou createst for Adam and Eve. I will place enmity between thee. So that line right there where um, this is, you know, we don't know if this is from Joseph Smith himself. It's likely that it was uh, kind of solidified into a reproducible thing uh, later. Uh, But this idea that the Satan figure, the Lucifer figure here is specifically saying, I and my minions will possess the bodies of the children of Adam and Eve. It's It's a direct reference to this concept of possession. And, um, I don't know that I think you were the one that first, uh, kind of, uh, pointed that out. I'm going to see if, uh, you have anything to add to that. Cause there's another moment where we see how to cast people out. Yeah. You actually, you were, you were the one who came up with this particular mm-hmm. segment as it applies. And I was the one who thought of this other one, but you know, 
Okay, uh, let's see if we can do this There's plenty of one. credit to go around. Yes. So let's see here. Um, I think this is the moment. That is right. We commend you for your integrity. Good day. We shall probably visit you again. Okay, so it's when they come back. Soon. Hold on. Okay, here we go. Do you ever feel like doing uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000 when we're watching this? <laughs> we should do that. <laughs> okay. Oh, no. Oh, no. Okay, here we go. He's such the a thing, ham. I feel bad that all of the Mormons today will never get to really see this like live. Michael Balaam was the best I Satan, and he's also the worst. Yeah. I am John. Yes, I thought I knew you. By the way, John, you see John? That's Stuart Peterson. He was Joseph Smith in the 1976 production of The First Vision. Did you know that? Oh, I did not know that. The little kid? Well, John, yeah, that's John. Okay. Can you go back to a second? There he is, right there. Ah, you have looked over my kingdom and my greatness and glory. Now you want to take possession of the whole of it. I have a word to say concerning okay, hold on. these people. Oh, this is what you said, yeah, before. They do not walk out to every covenant they make at these altars in this temple this day. They will be in my power. So Ooh, what a ham. You to depart. By what authority? Dun, 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 dun. In the name of Jesus Christ, our master. All right, yeah. so there you've got you've got that moment where he he strikes the posture, he raises his right hand, he invokes the name of Christ, and that is, you know, everyone who went to the temple, you know, once a month, once every they they were all taught this subconsciously about what you do to cast people out. And if if that can cast out Satan himself, then any lesser demon could also be commanded in a similar fashion. And you can tell this is really pissing off Michael Balaam right now. Yeah. And that's the other thing is he does not, he can't fight against it because there's no greater power. He's got the hand up. <laughs> Adam and Eve are like, oh, snap. <laughs> it's going down. It's going down. He just raised his hand. Uh-oh. Somebody jumped him. Oh, my gosh. Oh, we miss it. No, wait a second, because uh, he's going to turn and look, and then he's just going to go whoomp away. That's my really? favorite part. Yeah. He's going for the Academy Award on this one. Sell it, Michael. Oh, and then you get the thunder. <laughs> well, I mean, you get the sense, like, even though we were focusing on the apostle um, raising his arm, invoking the name of Christ, you know, before that, the Satan figure is with the greatest degree of maliciousness talking about the enmity that's going to exist and, and his, you know, desire to take control over uh, the, the children of, of Adam and Eve, the children of God. And it really gives that menacing sense that I think is what really casts a spirit of dread and darkness and anxiety over this whole concept of possession. Mm -hmm. Now, I have a different family member that I was talking with and saying, hey, I'm, I'm you know, we're going to be talking about uh, possession. And his response is, I don't want to hear anything about it. And I'm just like, what do you mean? He's like, I, I just don't, I don't want to study it. I don't want to know anything about it. I don't want to invite that into my life. And so I, I just like, I spent, cause it's just like a, an, a wall that I've never seen before of not even wanting to talk about it. And um, so I dug around a little bit. I poked and prod. Where do you believe that? How do you have that? Well, it turns out that in the 1970, late 1970s, late 1970s, early eighties, he decided as a young child that he was going to be brave and he was going to watch the movie, The Exorcist, because it's fake and he's brave and it messed him up. And it basically colored his entire world about the beings in the spiritual realm, but it, it gave him this aura of fear about it. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. And it's almost like, you know, when you're reading Harry Potter and they talk about you don't you can't even say the name Voldemort because it will call the evil one to you. And there's this fear of even saying the name. And as I've talked to various family members who are still believers in Mormonism, that sense of fear and dread of even talking about these things still persists. Yeah, and it's really line, remarkable. I'm sorry. Yeah. The scariest line in that movie to me was when the demon says to the priest, your mother cooks socks in hell. I just thought that was uncalled for. What? <laughs> I haven't. <laughs> when the demon says to the priest, your mother cooks socks in hell. Is that, did, was the demon dyslexic? Is that what it was? I, maybe. I think it's that's possible. what it was. Okay. Um, let's see here. So we've got um, one more story. Well, close to one more story. We'll see where, how are we doing time wise? Eh. Okay. So the next story involves somebody that's still This is going to have to be a two-parter, I think, Jonathan. Oh, you didn't believe on. me when I told you that before, but I, think I don't so. have the patience for that crap. I got stuff to do. Okay, let's see. Uh, this is a He's story very regarding folks. We're just lucky to have him for an hour and a half tonight. <laughs> uh, this is regarding our favorite car salesman. Well, so this story uh, I found it's the only one in the collection that isn't a strictly a first-person narrative. Elder this Ballard. one is from the Journal of Leonard Arrington, who was uh, at the time serving as church historian. And he was invited to uh, someone's home in Salt Lake City, and there was a gathering there, and Elder Ballard was there. Uh, That's Elder M. Russell Ballard, president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. You mean Sorry, for Melvin? Is he? Yes, acting, acting yeah, president. Yeah, he's the president. <laughs> hey, acting <laughs> yeah. president. Yeah, get right. Yes. Okay. At the time, he had just finished serving as a mission president in eastern Canada, and he was very soon to be called, or, or had already been called, I can't remember, to the first Quorum of Seventy. So he tells the story of a woman who was possessed in the mission field and the missionaries try and cast out the evil spirit or, and they don't know if it's the devil or not they just think it's an evil spirit they try to cast it out it doesn't work it doesn't work it doesn't work she goes on a temple trip and they report that when she's in the temple everything is fine but when she, as soon as she gets out of the temple she starts to manifest this again and the sources uh, Arrington's journal is not clear about what Ballard said her symptoms were at the time in the earliest phase of the possession they just say that they couldn't get rid of it. And so uh, Elder Ballard hears about this and travels to where the woman is. And as soon as he gets there, according to the account, the woman starts to react violently. And I have Ballard, the same response. For some reason, instructs the stake president, who was also there, to lay his hands on the woman and cast the devil out. And Ballard diagnoses her as being possessed by the devil himself during this process. So the stake president does it, and it works, but only for a minute. So the missionaries did it. It didn't work at all. The stake president does it. The devil leaves the woman for a moment and then supposedly comes back in. And then Elder Ballard says, well, I guess I'll have to take over. And so he takes over and lays his hands on her. And this takes about 30 minutes of him. I think he says he's having a discourse with Satan, um, obviously, through the woman's voice, until finally he casts succeeds in casting the devil out and then he interprets this story for his audience by saying that clearly the reason that he was able to do it was the devil had to respond to the highest church authority in the region okay so um <laughs> why don't i ever hear elder bella talk about this in general conference i guess this is just what he tells at dinner parties i it must be he's um so 
uh, Professor Tyson in this uh, in this podcast talks about how the work of the performance of exorcism has different realms, and it includes the practical thing of about. Um, or it includes the spiritual thing about what you're doing. You're trying to cast a demon out, but it also informs the audience. It for, informs people who observe or hear the story of it. It informs the people involved in the actual exorcism itself. In this case, it serves uh, the purpose of um, doing a couple of things. It validates the authority of the priesthood holder, but it then now stratifies hierarchy right. um, because it's no longer that the name of Christ is good enough to command the demons. Sorry. Uh, now it's the hierarchy of the brethren of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And it's not that, you know, because there's no keys specific to exorcism where you can say there's no church exorcist. Um, but, you know, the missionary is not good enough. And even the mission president that's not good enough. And it, it has to be, you know, he talks about in this, the if you take this to its logical extent, this is Satan. You know, this is not just a, a low-level demon. Elder Ballard and, diagnosed it as Satan. Yes. And Satan was okay, you know, staying and hanging around with the mission presidents. But when it comes to Elder Ballard, who at that time was in the Quorum of the Seventy, um, then he's going to leave. Uh, yeah. And so it's, it is performative and self-serving in that yes. it elevates now Ballard. He can tell the story back, because you know the, the, the area presidents come back and they report to their superiors. And how great is this story gonna be to your superior who would have been one of the apostles relating where there was this uh, exorcism that you invoked your priesthood. And, it, and, and on top of that, so now you're elevating the higher you are in the hierarchy of the church, the more command and presence you have in the face of demons. That is going to also feed the egos of the higher members of the church. And they're going to see that this is somebody who understands hierarchy and authority. And that's going to be something that will certainly, um, you know, be a feather in his cap in that regard. Well, apparently it worked because he is the acting president of the Gorm of the Twelve now. <laughs> yeah. But here's the thing. It's, it's just like this blessing thing, right? The whole idea in the church, which is, uh, I'm sick. Uh, I get a blessing from my home teacher. Doesn't work. Okay, Bishop will help me. Doesn't work. State president will help me. Doesn't work. Let me get somebody who's higher in authority because surely they have the power to heal mm -hmm. me and just pray to God. It's not, you know, President Iring, Dr. Death showing up at your door because you are not long for this world if he shows up to heal you. Or if it's Elder Bednar, he'll show up and start asking you if, if you have the faith not to be healed. Yes. But really, but this is the same kind of thing. Welcome. There's, there's greater, welcome to you too. There's a greater, there's a greater power for blessing and exorcism, kind of similar things, the higher you go up the ecclesiastical food chain in the LDS church. The prayer line section yeah, of the absolutely. synagogue. Hold on just a second here. Okay. So that, that you know, it, it's worth talking a little bit about the interaction of power and these exorcism things. And if we go, just rewind back to now when we're talking about Joseph Smith and that first Newell, came, or Newell Knight story. Yeah. When Joseph demonstrates that he has the power to cast the demon out, then that now authenticates Joseph's claim to divine authority. Right. And, and here then, not only does he have that, President Ballard, you know, affirms that again, it's authenticating his priesthood authority, but then it's authenticating his level of greatness within the priesthood authority. And 
this performative, this is part of that, that kind of practical work of the exorcism performance is that it informs people about a hierarchy of power. Now, if you want to see a really dramatic example of that, that is in the same vein, we can look to the Synagogue Church of All Nations. Synagogue Church of All Nations is in Lagos, Nigeria. Its prophet and founder is a guy named T.B. Joshua. And his, the, he, so the El Mormon Church has like 1.2, 1.4 million followers on their YouTube channel, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Well, Emmanuel TV, which is the YouTube channel for the Synagogue Church of All Nations, has 1.8 million followers. It's got more than the Mormon Church. And so th they get a lot of viewership all around the world. Well, there is this remarkable uh, story where you've got TB Joshua in the white church and the paradigm for their exorcism is he goes through and he lays his hands on people and they kind of fall away and then he'll hit somebody who recoils and starts manifesting these demons and that's when the performance starts. That's when the interaction starts. And of all nations so, where prophet TB Joshua is ministering prayer to the people in Jesus' name. He ministers prayer to this man and the man swings out of the prayer line. Prophet TB Joshua stretches forth his hand in Jesus' name and the man drops to the ground. Ow. This is the power and anointing of our Lord Jesus Christ throwing the man's back straight on the floor. Wait a minute. The man slowly rises back up and has an intense stare in his eyes. This is round two. Prophet Davy Joshua moves to the right with a kick and down he goes. <laughs> down on the... Now, <laughs> who's, who's doing that voiceover? No, I... No, 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 this is, this, this is literally, this is the voiceover of the church itself. This is not somebody making fun of it. This is the narration they want to have with this. This is with on their kick? actual channel. Okay, okay. Round two. Round okay. and down for the count. He did not know. Okay, I'm going to fast forward it a little bit because what this guy does, so it's, it's spiritual battle, right? And then he tells the guy to uh, basically crawl on his stomach. And then he says, you know, now try to touch me. And let's see if we can get to this part. Back here. is flat on the floor. Yeah. Joshua. Okay. He so gets he, into he challenges him. He says, "Touch me." Closer to grab the man of God's leg, but look at his hand. It begins to shake. Satan's power is powerless in the face of God's armor and weapons. And okay, but his cheek doesn't count. Goes. Okay, so that now TB Joshua has established that he has power over this demon. Now, what he does next is really remarkable because he calls on people from the audience to come and try the same thing because we've got a they demon now that's going to attack it. people. If you know, you can just come and stand in front of him and see whether he will not grab you. <laughs> so he did, he did grab that person. So he can grab that person. Let's see here. And then, so everybody that he calls can grab. And then he says, I need a pastor. So he's calling for a pastor specifically. Let's see if we can get to that point. This is a practical side of Christianity. Okay. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, give me a mic. In the name of Jesus. This is a very practical Christianity. In the name of Jesus Christ. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ. Out! So 
in this performance, that looked painful. The, TB Joshua is establishing a hierarchy of authority in the religious realm of Lagos, Nigeria, where his church is. So all the other people, even if they invoke the name of Jesus Christ, this demon can still grab them and touch them. And when and he calls for right, he calls for a pastor. So people are are like, well, you know, is is pastor level authority enough to make it so this demon can't even touch you? And it's not. And so it's only TB Joshua who is the the head religious authority. And so the performative aspect of this really gives it establishes and entrenches power, authority, and hierarchy in the culture and tradition that they have. Now the the parallel with this, and then he goes on eventually to cast this, the demon out, and then you can interact with the person. He you know th- there's a very specific pattern. If you watch all of these exorcisms uh, after they cast him out, the person's disoriented. Where am I? What am I doing? And then he starts to tell them that he's been cured. Uh, and in in this evangelical mode of Christianity, they don't call it exorcism; they call it deliverance. So if you want to see examples of this, just Google deliverance. Uh, on YouTube, and you'll see examples of this type of thing. But um, my question is whether this young man would have been able to touch Elder Ballard. Well, see, that's the that's the whole thing about it is that Elder Ballard's story served the same purpose of establishing hierarchy and authority in the religious paradigm. Mm-hmm. Um, chances are, he probably would have been able to grab Elder Ballard right in the uh, crotch. <laughs> Ow! You are. Terrible. You don't want to mess with these possessed people. This no. is dangerous stuff. It is. The power right, of Christ so, compels you. So um, there are a couple of things that I think are important. We've there, There's one more story in the modern realm of Mormonism that we have heard that you in particular would have encountered that was not included in the study of uh, Professor Taysom's collection of uh, of Mormonism and possession. Do you his know only, what I am referring to? His only went to? up to 1977, didn't it? Yeah, I believe that's true. That's yeah, true. I do. I do because you thought of this. Yes, you you're brilliant. By the way, have I mentioned that lately? I basically just live my life in a way to try to get people to say that. Um, <laughs> well, you're succeeding as far as I'm concerned. But this okay, is a great so, story. It's a recent. Well, it's actually a recent recounting of a story that would have happened actually back in the late 1970s. Yeah, and um, and one of the things interesting here is that uh, there are unreliable people involved in this particular account, and so this is. If you remember the McKenna Denson... As, as opposed to all the other accounts that we've heard tonight. Well, all these other people are reliable, yes. Okay. Well, we, we now know that there are aspects of McKenna Denson. It, for people who don't know, this is a woman who came a, a forward a few years ago with a story that she had been sexually assaulted in the MTC. Um, it was a, a really messy thing because uh, the church actually conceded that not only could it have been possible, but other victims had previously come forward and the way that she came forward was by confronting him and secretly recording a conversation with him where he acknowledged some form of sexual misconduct um with other sister missionaries with other sister missionaries and and um marginally with her um it eventually went to it didn't go to trial but a, a case was put before the court uh after things happened it was thrown out uh, things that called into into question her, the credibility of of the witness um, is it kind of blew up in in a lot of people's faces because she there was had, a big blow uh, up but but I think that really yeah. what happened was it was voluntarily dismissed yeah okay very good okay. Um, uh, I, except actually is that, well no hold on let's get technical because the judge said it was dismissed with prejudice what does that mean was that voluntarily I, I wasn't there but the deal oh, is okay. that there's a motion to dismiss uh, most of it was allowed she was allowed to proceed with like one or two claims against the church. 
Then there was uh, kind of a blow up. Some things happened uh, okay. that caused her attorney to withdraw. But the case was alive until finally it was, um, what do you call it, uh, non-suited or yeah. she, she dismissed Something. it. Yeah. Okay. So that's beside the point. Just you're going to hear a female voice, and that is her yes. confronting yes. this accuser. Just understand that. Right. And this is Joseph man, Bishop, the this former is Joseph president Bishop. of the MTC, last name Bishop, just a coincidence, yeah. but mission president at the MTC back in the 1980s when McKenna Denson was there and she made this allegation. And separate and apart from the allegation she's making against him, he relates to this story that happened when he was a mission president, right? Was it in yes. Argentina? Was it in yeah, Brazil? It, yeah, it was, it was in somewhere Brazil. south of the border in Brazil. And it has to do with possession. Yeah. And maybe so it has to do with some inappropriate conduct on his part as well. Yeah. Well, let's see here. Where are you? Okay, let's see here. Okay. I'm going to fast forward just a little bit because... Okay. Okay, here we go. Hold on. Yeah, they did. Who was besieged with evil spirits. I've never the, experienced them before. Didn't know they existed, but they do. They attacked me. So in this process, trying to save my soul, I said, okay, well, I need to tell you everything. And I went back as far as memory could. I think I talked about you. Okay, so what he's talking about is... That at this moment in the conversation, she had asked him, did you ever confess your prior sexual sins to any priesthood leader because you were being put in all these positions of authority and power as mission president, as president of the MTC? And he says, yes, I did confess. I confessed to um, this, uh, the, the leader Elder of him. Yeah, Elder Wells. Elder Wells. Right. And then he's saying that in the context of confessing to Elder Wells, the reason he did it is as mission president, he had a sister who was possessed, he says, beset by evil spirits. And then he says, I didn't know they existed, but they do. And, you know, after they were possessing her, they attacked him and they came into him. And later he talks about, um, you know, the, the spirits in him led him then to seek out that general authority and part of his cleansing from the spirits was confessing everything. And so the reason that this is even coming up is because this is the context in which he would have confessed those uh, sins. Because you were MTC president okay, after Argentina. I think I, okay. Argentina. Well, all I can say is I tried mm -hmm. to talk about anything that I've ever done. And he said to me, haven't you talked, haven't you, said this to some of the answers, yes, to this bishop one thing, to this bishop another thing, to this bishop another thing. Now I've got a general authority. I don't know if he invokes the spirits anymore. And if you could go back there for a second. Yeah. He, it was transcribed as patient, but he's actually saying to one bishop one thing, to another bishop another thing. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that I think that's the moment where he has, it takes a little bit longer where he expands on it. We don't have time for it now where he talks about basically he admits at this point at this point that he had a life full of sexual impropriety and lustful thoughts and feeling and he's kind of mixing in the insertion of those thoughts um with his interaction with these evil spirits and so the the confession to Elder Wells is to have, have Elder Wells basically cast this demon out of him, get rid of these these spirits so that he can cleanse himself. And it's kind of, there's always this blend between healing and repentance and um, 
in terms of what the priesthood authority is doing, it, whether it's healing you, absolving you of your sins, or your sins are related to being possessed because a demon or an evil spirit is inserting bad thoughts into your mind that may um, influence you, there, there's a connection between um, these themes. Um, but let's leave that. And I think we're getting to the point where we should probably open up the phone lines. Now, the phone number uh, today is going to be different than the past because I'm I'm in my battle station rather than Bill's. So if you want to uh, dial, the number is 210-422-2222. Do you have a little thing that you can put up on the screen? Because Bill has a neat thing, a banner that he runs across the screen. I can do it. Okay. Um, So a different phone number tonight doesn't end with fist or dirt. There it is, 210-422-2222. Call now. Hopefully. Hopefully we have the audio issues fixed where you'll be able to interact with them a little bit. Oh, that'd but be awesome. I think that, uh, let's see, before we close that out, we have to we have to see this question of, is it real or is it not real? And so the question of, you know, fraud in um, exorcism always brings this particular video clip to mind. Uh, let's see if we can bring it up here. This is a, a clip of a man who is, who is possessed in the middle of one of these... We're gonna. Okay, hold on a second. Hold on. We're gonna have to take this call. We'll have to finish this to be okay, continued. Bit, you told me about this clip. I want to see it. But Hello, I, you are on. What is this? Mormonism Live. Yes. Can you hear me? <laughs> Hi. Thank you so much right, for having me. I gotta make it where I can hear. Boop. Can you hear me? I can Speak. hear you. Where's the caller? Did you dump the caller? Oh. All right. Hold up. Give me a second. Give me a second. I, I can hear another caller coming in in my ear right now. All right, you Ooh. might be able to hear. Let's see here. I thought I had this set up. Mm-hmm. We're, we're experiencing a little okay, technical difficulty. This could be difficulty. bad news, Bill. <laughs> oh, no. Are you able to hear anything, Bill? Bill? Oh, that's the guy on the phone. Are you able to hear anything, uh, Corp? Uh, RFM? Yeah, I can Speak hear you. Speak RFM. I okay, can hear so you. I can't hear you. So something's. You can't hear me. Um, oh, good. Hmm. Well, you can't hear me. Okay. Okay. So I lost my audio. RFM, speak again. Hello. Okay, Hello, so testing, for, one, two, three, testing, <laughs> one, two, three. Okay, for some reason, when I pull up uh, Google Voice, that doesn't show up. That is uh, disappointing. Let me see if I can just bring that up in another one. I'm sorry. If it's, uh, between me, if it's between me and the caller, just go ahead and, you know, let the caller go ahead and talk. Okay, well, we'll see. I'm going to try a different uh, paradigm for that, and we'll see if it works. But uh, it may or not, it may not. Okay, um, I'm going to have to close that so, okay. Um, hmm. Okay. Well, in the meantime, I'll have to close that down because I don't know if we'll be able to take calls because now the audio is not working in a major way. If I go back to this and that and the microphone, we do that test. I can hear you. Okay. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Okay. So I'm going to see if, if somebody calls, we might be able to make it work, but I don't know that you'll be able to hear yes. them and there may be an echo. Okay, so where were we? Ah, uh, yes. All right, so let's get to this. Someone's going to interrupt us, but basically he's saying we're we're here to cast out demons, and then he's calling for someone to come forth. What do you do? We cast them out in the name of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, you bro, come let me pray for you. Okay. <laughs> so this is the guy get, who's possessed. Yes, we'll get to it eventually. All right, let's see. All right, hopefully this works. You are on Mormonism Live. Can you hear me? Oh, hey. All right. What do you got for us? I can't hear this person. I hope can the people out there hear it? Oh, oh, okay. Well, hold on a second because I've got a problem where people cannot hear you, so I'm going to have to change 
something real quick. Hold up just a second. See if. Sure. Okay. Yes. Now. Okay. I think you can hear him, but I can't. Okay. That's okay. You, you interact with him. Hello. Is there a caller there? Can you hear me, caller? Oh, can you not? Hold on. Let's see here. All right. That's not working. You know, I feel bad. I feel like I've flubbed it. I can hear. All right. You can. He I said can he can hear. hear. Maybe he can hear you. Well, he might be able to hear me, but I can't hear him. So I'm afraid that this is I a can, uh, technical snafu. I can only hear Jonathan. On I can't hear. Uh, so, so the caller can hear Jonathan, but Jonathan <laughs> can't hear the caller. And I can hear the caller, but I, the caller can't Wait, you, hear me. You, you, you can hear the caller? Okay, this is, this is okay, classic. Okay, so he can hear you. Look, he can hear you. Just say, go ahead. What is it you want no, to say? I, I, hung, I hung up on him. He's gone. Oh my gosh! You know our audience is dropping like flies. It's it's going like it's tanking. <laughs> We've worked for ten okay. weeks to get it to go like this, and now it's going. No, that's okay. It's you know that's what you get for inviting me on. I always have these problems. Okay, so um, so if we can have another call, talk. Everybody can hear you, and then I can uh, tell Jonathan what was said. I can, and um, uh, we'll just sort of hobble through okay. it. Uh, let's see here. Voice. There's a way we can do this. Tom. Okay. All right, hold on. I have to break this apart to a different window and make that so you guys are seeing this. Bam. What we're watching, folks, right now is a genius in action. And I mean that literally. Okay, you are here super we go. technologically savvy. Let's go. Me? All right. I can hear Jonathan Streeter. All Great. right. Hey. Can you hear me? Now, if you can Hello. silence your computer in the background. I have. I already did so. Thank you. So Excellent. Much. All right. Corbin, can you hear our guest on the phone? Uh, I'm sorry. What do you say? Okay. So, guest, speak. Okay, uh, I don't think RFM can hear me, but anyway, thank you so much for having me, you guys. Uh, uh, I love what you guys do so much. Um, I have a quick question. Uh, yes. Perhaps maybe a man of RFM's legal expertise might be able to elucidate on the matter, but anyway. Okay, wait, I'm so going to start running my clock. It's $250 an hour. Go ahead and start. <laughs> called Watch Your Tone, and uh, I saw that you guys were dissecting the Temple video today, um, mm. and you guys were sort of like looking at the images um, and we've been developing a song that uh, contains certain samples, <coughs> uh, portions of the ceremony, um, and we're, you know, have trepidation about releasing it for the trigger happiness of Curtin McConkie, perhaps. And so uh, we were just wondering, I was just wondering, you know, how trigger happy they are, if the images are copyrighted, and if they are, whether they would be protected under fair use. So, you know uh, something? I think they should contact uh, Nune Noah about that issue. Today, so I wonder if there might be a little bit of yeah. uh, something you guys know about that I don't. Yeah, so the question is, uh, is there any legal issues with including snippets of the Temple film in media, uh, commercial oh, or otherwise, yeah. I assume? Um, yeah. And and uh, I don't know if you can hear RFM, but uh, their uh, initial statement was... Curtin McConkie would need to contact New Name Noah uh, because that's the channel on which it exists well, and through which we're. Truth um, of the matter is, I actually have I actually have received permission from New Name Noah. I I reached out to him on Reddit and he gave me the okay. So if that were possible, like if that were obtained, I would be good, right? So a person <laughs> who has illegally obtained the temple content is giving you permission to use his illegally obtained content. Yeah, I don't think that's going to go very far. But you know, he can't hear me, can he? Yeah, can you hear him? No, I can't. Okay, well, he, he's, he's still going to you know, be so getting person, my bill in the mail. 
<laughs> you're still gonna get his bill in the mail, but the person who obtained the illegal, illegally <laughs> obtained the content <laughs> is giving you permission to use his illegal content. And the answer is that's probably not gonna go very far. So that's the, uh, that's the story on that question. I think you should consult with uh, legal okay. counsel that is actually experienced right. in the field. Okay. No and his recommendation is to consult with legal counsel that is familiar with digital uh, intellectual property law. <laughs> I just represent I, I, people I, I, who are unjustly accused of crimes. Professional answer. Thank you so much yeah, for your time. <laughs> no worries. Okay. Take care. Bye. Bye now. Seems like okay, a nice fellow. Okay, so that worked. Okay, so now we've got uh, Klonatseve Dream Killer. If you called earlier, so the author of that article happens to be watching the show. I actually contacted really? him a few days ago. He, he's got some comments on there. Uh, let's see if maybe he's calling in. We don't know. Hello, you are on... Mormonism Live. Hello. Yeah, you're on. Can you guys hear me? I can. What's on your mind? All right. Yeah. I was just actually thinking about what Elder Packer had to say about the priesthood as we were talking about this hierarchy going on of, you know, who can cast out devils and fight back and who can't. And okay. um, Elder Packer actually was pretty, um, you know, he was pretty equal in this regard. He said that everyone had the full priesthood when they became an elder. You didn't just get a part of the Melchizedek priesthood. Um, he has mm. an old talk called What Every Elder Should Know. And um, I just think it's really interesting that he didn't seem to prescribe to this hierarchy method, even though he was very high up and is known to be pretty for tradition and for the hierarchy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and actually reminds me of, you know, in my mission stories and Mormon lore and things, there were times where, oh, the mission president couldn't handle this situation, but Elder so-and-so, they were able to you know, live in this haunted apartment or whatever, and uh, the devil didn't bother him. And so I just find it fascinating how little direction the church has given us over, you know, who can and can't boss demons around the devil and, and all that sort of thing. Oh, that's a good point. Uh, RFM, you could hear the caller? Yes, I could. You notice the mission field? Say again? Did you notice the mission? It's the mission field. Yeah, oh, yeah, totally. This is another story in the mission, the mission field, field yeah. of of this going on. What do you think, RFM, of this idea that since there really isn't any explicit direction that's published that everyone can be unified on, that we end up getting a mixed bag of how to interact with demons? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's common with a lot of aspects of Mormonism. And uh, Elder Packer, I'm not familiar with that uh, story or talk. Uh, it does remind me of Elder McConkie, Only an Elder. That's a famous one that he did. You know that general conference talk, right? Only an elder, oh, yeah. you know. Yeah, you've got everything that the president of the church That's has. You get... <laughs> no, you were asking me if I remember that talk. Please, I didn't actually know who the apostles were till I left the church, and I'm like, oh, that's why I had to listen to that guy. So there, are, there are different aspects of like making it uh, democratized, at mm. least among the men, at least among the priesthood holders. Well, I, right? I'm not able to hear yeah. our attempt, So but I yeah, so why don't we the, adopt the paradigm where you uh, ask your question and then hang up, and that's what Bill does anyway. It's easier oh, yeah, just because no of problem. the technical Thank limitations. Yeah. So that was just the caller uh, signing off so he can listen to your response on the air for it. Oh, okay. Yeah. So um, hopefully okay. go back and rewind it because that was pretty much all I had to say. <laughs> but yeah, mission field, democratized, but then there's other aspects where other general authorities have a different view on it. And there's what the members yeah. generally understand culturally. So, um, but I think the general idea is that the higher you go, the more power there is to do whatever it is that power needs to do. All right. We got another call. Whether it's to receive revelation. Go ahead. Hello, you are on Mormonism Live. What do you got for us? Hey, this is Steve Case. I'm calling again. 
Hey, this is Professor Taysom, the the excellent uh, originator of all of these stories, who's put together just a fantastic article. I can't thank you enough for the work that you did on this. Yeah, well, I wish all my students were as perceptive as you are in terms of grasping this argument, but, you know, dreams <laughs> oh. have to live well, somewhere, I guess. <laughs> that's kind of you to say. Uh, but, this, the, I mean, the material is just so fascinating, particularly, you know, when you take these, um, these you know, dark and seem somewhat archaic spiritual forces and then you just see how they've managed to travel through time and inhabit different time periods in different ways and it's just so completely fascinating what do you think what's your take on it no i just you know i was surprised that nobody done it before um you know nobody had written about it before and you know making all the connections and of course it's speculative and you have to kind of be creative about making you know attaching things and and cause and effect is always a little bit fuzzy, but, um, you know, just taking the, the stories themselves and trying to put them in the broader context was what was so exciting yeah. to me about it. But I did want to say, you know, one of the earlier callers talked about, um, you know, Packers talk about what every elder should know and, and that, and the egalitarian part of it. And, you know, the interesting thing about that is egalitarianism of the charismatic gifts, like healing, tends to work uh, only in one direction. That is to say, if they don't want to be bothered with something, then they want to put that on locally. So don't come to us with something that a, that a yeah. home teacher can do. But if it's something like, I'm going to fight the devil, then that's going to get attention from people for the reasons that you just talked about. So yes, it's true. And, and But you see this all the time with, you know, if I'm a famous person and I want a blessing, I have no problem getting it from one of the higher ups. That, that's never mm-hmm. going to be a problem. So mm-hmm. part of it is profile. And and some things are are more eye catching than others. Yeah. And I would say that demonic possession is pretty high on that list. And yeah, I mean, and it's, you're you're absolutely right to note that most of this stuff is mission field. Um, I think partially because missionaries are are more prone to kind of see these things in this really simplistic way that leads mm. to this kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, those, that, that's all I really wanted to comment on. Other than just you guys have done an excellent job with the whole thing. Yeah, I think uh, on your comments on the mission field thing, you know, particularly, like, I feel like I didn't go on a mission. So, but I feel like all you guys who went on missions got this moment in time where your ego was fed brilliantly about all of the greatness that the the priesthood gave you in that you could command demons and that, you know, all these different things that, you know, those of us who just puttered away at home, not on the mission field, didn't get that experience of. It's almost like it's, it's a test and it's a challenge, but it's also feeding your ego in a really major way. Well, absolutely. I mean, you're put into this rarefied atmosphere and you're sort of, you've gone through this rite of passage where now you're kind of a fully fledged adult, you know, this credentialed um, mm-hmm. individual in this world. And then you're kind of isolated in this and you're doing this full time and you're young enough that, you know, you have this, one of the things that zealotry requires is a kind of simplistic view of the world and how it works. And, and this is true for for any belief system. And the young, so so the younger you are, the easier that is to um, to assimilate. You know that that yeah. there is this cosmic good and evil, and you can divide everything up and you see things like that because you haven't had you know a child astray yet. You haven't had a wife leave you yet. You haven't had a temple. You know, so none of these things have have the complexities of life haven't intruded on your fantasy yet about the, the mm-hmm. cosmic dualism. Yeah. And so I think that's part of it. That's part of why they it's so prevalent to interpret um, things. So that's the first thing that they go to, you know. Yeah. 
And that's why you see a lot of new religious movements targeting young college-age students, people who are just trying to make their way in the world, is that is that moment where you're still stuck in some ways of black and white thinking and simplistic views of the world. And it's no surprise then that these concepts of the presence of evil spirits and possession um, are you know, more prevalent in that population. Um, in my research for this, there's a, a brilliant article on um, policing the devil. Uh, I don't know if you came across it in your own studies where they talk just yeah. about some of the data points in, in the study of um, demonic possession and how prevalent just a belief in the presence of demons are in the belief of the ability of possession. And when they stratify it by age, it's definitely the, the younger people are more likely to believe in these things. And there's other ways that they look at it just in terms of, uh, you know, class, you know, the more if you're uh, a higher economic status, chances are less likely that you'll believe in possession. But if you're a higher economic status and you're attending church constantly and going to ch church constantly, suddenly you're going to believe in possession just the same that anyone else of any other class will. So all these different things are, you know, a mix into your mindset and how you perceive these different uh, forces. Yeah. And all of this is highly contingent on the historical context. So hmm. what is, um, what is, uh, what William James calls live options. You know, if it's a live option, um, then it's less transgressive to believe in it than it is mm. if it's a more quote unquote weirder thing, right? So, yeah. um, yeah, and, and this last thing is that young people just have a better tendency toward accepting drama, you know, the dramatic. And, um, you know, as you've read the article, you, the whole argument is that these are performances, these are dramas mm -hmm. that are, you know, playing out, you know, kind of sub rosa social issues. Um, through the, the symbolic language of possession and exorcism. And so yeah. if you're buying into the drama of it, you know, there's kind of a sweet spot in age there where people tend generally to be able to, you know, old enough that they have some experience, but they're not so old that they've had grittier experiences that could complicate mm -hmm. their worldviews. Yeah. yeah. Um, RFM, I don't know if there's anything that you want to add to this. He won't be able to hear you anyway, so just hush up. I want to talk to him some more. All right, so one of the things that... Uh, in my study of this, I, I've spent a lot of time looking both at the synagogue, Church of All Nations, as well as they have like some other groups that are all tied into this charismatic form of possession. And when you watch it, you get the sense that it's not only that the preacher or the, the they call them wise men, are exerting power and control over the performance, but there's also something psychologically that is helpful and useful in some of these cases. Because you'll see instances where a, a woman comes forward and is related to a story, for example, of meeting a man on Facebook and having an affair and breaking up her family. But now this is contextualized as a demon that took over her life. And so then it's now, it's like a form of absolution where this evil sin that would be otherwise considered a personal sin is now displaced onto the demon. The pastor casts the demon out she comes to and is like, where am I? What are I doing? And he's like, well, you've been, you've been delivered. And all of these things are now in your past. You are free of them. And then the family member, the father-in-law, who, you know, has, in, you know, other, if the demon wasn't there, there's some contention there, but the demon now has been cast out. And so now there's this instant forgiveness that has to be a role in this. And so there's a, a usefulness of it. Um, what what is your take on that? Do you see that historically in Mormonism, or are you seeing that now? Um, I don't know about Mormonism because I didn't I didn't think about that when I was looking at the at the data. But certainly, I would 
think that it is because when you look at modern stuff, um, you, I think Michael Cuneo, who is a, a sociologist, who wrote a book called American Exorcism, which I talk about in the article, um, mm. really important book in the field. He, he called um, exorcism, I think he called something like the crazy uncle of therapy, of psychotherapy. So <laughs> okay. it's definitely got this kind of cathartic effect on people, not least of all because of this issue of displacement, of, of saying, you know, this, and, and by the way, this tracks with, on a, on a slightly more institutionalized level, this tracks with things like Elder Renlund's talk from a few years ago, where he quotes uh, from Shakespeare, where one of the characters, when he's asked, are you the one that, that killed his brother, or tried to kill his brother? And he says, uh, twas I, but tis not I. In other words, yes, I was that evil thing, and now I'm not. So it's, mm. it's a more dramatic um, version of this of this changing, right? So it's, it's, but it's a way of presenting it in a really explicit sense. Um, mm. I, I see it as, as opening the door to something that people are calling spiritual bypassing, where you use some sort of religious paradigm to shortcut a resolution of some personal conflict or some personal um, shortcoming in your life. So in the case of, for right. example, this uh, case of adultery, if, if she goes through this process of deliverance, displaces all of the guilt, all of the harm, all of the shame, and everything that goes along with it into this demon that is then expunged from her, then she can go and demand acceptance from her family without actually having to do the work of reconciliation that would normally accompany any form of healing from that type of relationship harm. And that is something that is very palpable and you can see it happening in a case like this, but there are other instances where you could take that concept of spiritual bypassing and see it applied to even the concept of baptism, where, you know, a, a husband does something that, you know, breaks up a marriage and then they get, they go to the thing, they get the baptized again, they're forgiven of their sins and they don't have to go through the work of reconciliation. And that's where kind of, I see that happening in these modern day exorcisms that just kind of brings that to, uh, to my mind. Is there any other I mean, psychological... Go ahead. No, I mean, and just broadly speaking, in religions that believe in any kind of pollution, you're going to have rituals that do two things. One is protect people, so apotropaic rituals that keep the evil out. But mm -hmm. then you're going to have rituals that, that need to displace the pollution once it inevitably gets in. Hmm. And so those displacement um, rituals have to have mechanisms for um, separating the individual from the act. And so you can read that, you, you can populate those rituals with all kinds of characters, right? With savior figures, but also with demon figures. And they all serve the same basic purpose, which is to separate the individual from the acts that they're, that they're doing. And then, then those acts are then carried off um, into wherever, the ether, right? They don't exist anymore, which is really an interesting concept when you think about the Mormon concept of agency, right? Which is you yeah. do something, you make a choice, you pay the price for it, unless you get some kind of divine intervention that then short circuits the agency, which is a, an area that hasn't been explored theologically. I'm not a theologian, so I'm not in my depth on that. I think that's I've supposed to be grace, before, but, but I don't know. <laughs> well, uh, it's interesting because as I looked into, you know, just kind of this whole concept of uh, exorcism and possession. You allude to it a little bit in your paper and in the podcast about how baptism in the Catholic ritual was preceded with an, an anointing that served the function of exorcism, perhaps doing some of, of what you're alluding to in terms of separating the pollution from the individual and preparing them for that ritual. And and we don't I don't know that there's echoes of that in Mormon baptism, 
but there's echoes of another type of exorcism, which was uh, purifying a, an object or a location. And in Mormonism, we do have consecrating a household. Do you see any echoes or uh, parallels in, in the Mormon ritual of that? Yeah, this goes, this is a, I don't think there's any historical tie, but this is something that emerges in human cultures all the way back to Mesopotamia. This notion of, of consecrating and then protecting through apotropaic or warding off um, what we call magic, but, but just ritual action. And so that's what essentially, you know, dedication mm. does. And, and when you listen to the language of dedication of homes, dedication of graves, dedication of temples, there's always included, or very often there's included in that, a kind of a plea to protect from harm. Um, mm. And this is a this is an old idea. So, um, and then of course, rededicating a building after it's been defiled by opening it up again yeah. with construction workers. Well, it's it's so fascinating to see how the things that I've always conceived of as very clean and modern in Mormonism can trace their roots back to things that are very ancient and archaic, and maybe we're surrounded by these demonic illusions at one point in time. Um, I can understand how that was very enticing for you to study. What was it that first kind of turned your eye in the direction of Mormon exorcism? I don't I think I watched The Exorcist when I was at uh, Utah State, and I, I started thinking about it. And I went down to uh, I went down to Provo once to um, a bookstore down there, uh, which mm-hmm. is not there anymore. Pioneer? Oh, no, it wasn't Pioneer Book. It was the one that um, it was Grandin Book that a guy named Lyndon Cook ran it. And I, I was talking to the person working there, and I don't remember who it was, but I said I was interested in, in that. And uh, he said, oh, Mormons don't do exorcism. And so that immediately, I was like, well, I figured this out. So I, <laughs> and that was, I mean, that was 25 years ago. And so it's just been on my mind and then went through graduate school and everything. And then they did the and research it, and found the sources and it was just super interesting. I mean, you know. Well, it struck, uh, Corbin, And I, in talking about this episode, we're looking at some of the parallels between Joseph Smith's whole mythology and kind of spiritual anatomy of of spirit beings included this concept that we as individuals can be possessed somewhat. You know, the concept of the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost residing within us is a form of possession. And it it turns out there's actually a word for it, adorcism, where it's uh, uh, a practice of placating or accommodating spiritual entities in a possessed person or place. Unlike exorcism, the relationship with the entities is positive, voluntary, desired, and curative possessions is what is called adorcism. And so the Mormon concept of wanting to make sure that your life is in harmony with the spirit so that you can be inhabited by the spirit, uh, play, it's, it's, a, it's like a white side possession which is in opposition to this demonic possession, but the concept of a spirit inhabiting your body is common to both of them and necessary, if that makes any sense. You know, it makes a lot of sense, and it goes back to, um, so one of my colleagues in the department where I teach um, is an expert on the writings of of Paul. And so he's been, you know, I don't know that he's published anything, but in his classes on Paul, he talks a lot about this idea of positive possession, you know, trying to get away from the technical terms for his students. But, But yeah, so we have an ordinance that includes the words, I say unto you, receive the Holy Ghost. I mean, if you're f- totally from outside the tradition and you're looking at that, what it looks like is you are casting a spirit into somebody. Um, and so we don't think of that in, in those terms, but if, you know, from inside, but from outside, that's what it looks like. And so yeah. it, 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 there's a lot of fascinating work yet to be done on this, I think, um, in Mormonism. Um, it, it's much more common in terms of the way we think um, 
then we know because we tend not to ray too far into kind of asking questions about the logical conclusions of certain things. Yeah. Yeah. You, you use the story for what it's needed in the moment and don't try to tie it into everything else or, or go beyond exactly. that. Yeah. Right. There's no kind of systemic thinking in usually. All right. Well, while we have you on the line, RFM, is there anything that has jumped to your mind that you want to pose to our uh, phone guest on this whole conversation? Uh, not really. I just, I mean, I, I appreciate the professor calling. I know what he's talking about. I actually have two ex-wives that were possessed by demons. Oh my God. I don't know if you can hear him, but he's talking about his two ex-wives who are possessed by demons. So I'm going to take the microphone back from him. <laughs> and uh, I thank you so much. Personal, but but I, I, let me just say, I have a personal, I, I feel his pain on that. I, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, um, Thank you again for uh, sharing your perspective on this. Um, I think, you know, I, I kind of wish now in retrospect that we could have gotten you on for the whole conversation, but uh, have you share your thoughts now has no. uh, been you a gift. A so job. thank you so much. Thank you. All right. You did a great Take job. care. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye now. Thank you. Okay. All right. How Ooh. long do you guys normally go? Where were we at? We're at oh, uh, about minute, uh, seven minutes an hour ago. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Seven minutes ago, you're going to have to get my blankie. Okay. 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 So I'm gonna I'm gonna say that we're done. We can close it up and uh, and but but as a closing thing, I gotta show my favorite. I have to show my favorite exorcism. Oh right, right. Um, That one. Okay. So the guy with the green shirt. I don't know. No, no. Well, yeah. Let's finish that one. But there's there's one. Okay. So this is now the closing. This is gonna be the closer. Okay. So everyone, you can go to bed after this, and you can hang up after this, and and everything. I'm closing down the phone lines. You're gonna love this. I haven't um, seen this, but I've heard about it. Okay, so here we let me I have to bring it up again. This is exorcism interruptus. Yes. Okay, here we go. Uh share it. Boop. All right, here we go. Let's finish this. Now, Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray for your man servant. I pray that any demon that is tormenting his life, I cast them out now in the name of Jesus. I bind them and I lose the host. Lose the host now. Good demon in He's under the anointing. Uh, Call back later. I'm under anointing, please. I say I'm under anointing. Can't you understand? I will call you. Uh, Bye bye. Pastor, continue. Continue for what? Pastor, continue. Continue for what? Pastor. Do not want to be in the ministry. (laughs) Pastor, do not have any demons that cast out of your life. Okay. Exercise. There's always the question: Is it real or is it not real? That's the one. The one moment where you can say that it's uh, it it just might not be real. It might be a performance. But as we've seen, those performances can have significance and meaning to the people involved, even if they're not real. So with that, I'm going to say the episode is over. It's not a lie, Jonathan. It's not a lie if you believe it. Thank you, George Costanza. All right, so let's see there here. Are there any? <laughs> okay, so the, the episode is over. Yay. Okay, okay now. So we got the bumper music everyone... at the end. Do you have that? Jonathan, sir, no thank bu- you so much for joining us tonight and completely taking over and monopolizing Mormonism. <laughs> as long as I don't let you talk, then it's all good. You did a great job. Really, seriously, everybody, please, can we give a big round of applause? Give a hand clap for the Jonathan. Okay. <laughs> 
All right. Well, now he can uh, log this off now, and uh, and it's over. Okay. So now I just got to this, this, this. Good night, everybody. Okay, is it? Good night. May tomorrow be a special day. Okay. Yeah, you find I'm not ending it. I'm not ending it. Okay. Way. Everyone left. Everyone left now. Okay. Now this is the postscript. Okay. Because this is my favorite <laughs> exorcism. All right. This is just so good. I almost, you have to just see it. Okay. All right, this is the go. bonus um, material. This is the this director's is guide material. of yeah. Mormonism Live. Who are you? I am the ancient spirits. What is this position you are taking? This is my power and my majesty. Your power and your majesty. My priest. I think he took acting lessons from Michael Bellon. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like at the ham school of acting. Oh my gosh. How do you move? Let's see oh. the way you move. Crouching tiger, hidden demon. <laughs> and what happens anytime you move like that? My power and majesty move with me. I dominate his life, his family, everything. It's mine. Mm-hmm. How many powers do you have? Oh, enough power. More than enough to destroy this wretch. Mm-hmm. What have you done to his life? I saw a great star. I said, this star can touch every continent. I said, I will not allow it. I will use his cousin to try and initiate him to homosexuality. It failed. I was so frustrated. I then took him to pornography, to lust, to masturbation. He can't stop it. He hates it anytime he does it. Oh, why God? Why me? Why did I do this? God, help me. Next time, he says, I'll not do it again. I bring double the force to make sure he does worse than ever before. I think I may have been possessed as a teenager. Anyway, keep going. Oh my gosh, cartoons. I want this guy to ask him what that, what that apron is cartoons. he's wearing. It started with cartoons. At what age? I ended him when he was six years old through a computer game. Mm-hmm. He plays, he's addicted to computer game. No computer game. He, he entered this kid through his computer game? game? That's how I got him. From there. Isn't that against the probably- law? It was probably Doom. <laughs> but it, hold on, he gets this guy. Okay, this is great. Okay. I introduced him to Asian cartoons. From those cartoons, he went Sailor Anime. Moon. Anime. Anime. If Asian masturba- cartoons. If masturbation isn't going to work, anime is going to get him for sure. It will. Looking on the internet, when he found one, there was one next to it he didn't expect. When he clicked it, <laughs> pornography. That's how he was hooked. He entered it when he was six? That's definitely against the law. <laughs> years of his life wasted. I took his concentration. I took his focus. I made him unserious in everything. He can play, he can talk, he can chat for hours and forget himself. I did it. He's only six. What's I he doing with the focus? I tied his useless brother, his worthless father, his entire family are chained through the internet. Through games, the same spirit of computer games. And here we are watching the internet chained to it. I said you are ancient spirit. Ancient spirit. Mm-hmm. How old are you as ancient spirit? Timeless. What That's do you mean by timeless? Timeless. You can't count it. It's countless hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> That's who I am, and I will not let this boy go. I will not let him go. That star cannot shine here. That star can touch every continent. I don't want that for him. How do you know that he has a great star? I saw it shining. You saw I'm it an shining. ancient spirit. I saw it shining when, before he was born. I said, this star will never manifest. I don't think I this guy's faking him it. him in the mother's womb. I think it's he was real. Born through operation. So early, they kept him in a bubble for the first months of his life. He's supposed to have died there. So many sicknesses. I even had one of my agents inject him. I wanted to give him polio. It failed again. This guy's such a good actor, he has agents. I don't know what is keeping this boy alive. <laughs> How come it failed? Who rescued him and it failed? 
I can't imagine a force every time something just happens even last time I gave him depression through the same computer games I said your life is finished you have no more career you're not gonna make it anywhere take your life go run away something brought him back here again I hate this place what what's funny is he's describing like all the feelings that normal teenage boys have I know he ruined the six-year-old's career that really pisses me off how heartless can you uh, be only Satan would do okay. something like that. And taking well, his focus? Guess what? How is he going to get around without his focus? I don't know. <laughs> anyway, I won't put you guys through the rest of that. But uh, again, so I will put the show notes Please sign up, up today so at the Michael Balin School of Acting. I just want it to be known that this was the first episode that y'all were not burdened with pleas for money. So take that. Yes, please go to Mormonism Live. <laughs> Make a donation today. Thank you. Make it a monthly contribution. $10 a month, $20 a month, $50 a month, whatever you can afford. And remember, if you don't make a contribution today, I will come through the internet and I will possess your spirit. I do not want that star shining on every continent. I will take you. I will ruin your career. I will take your focus and I will send my agents after you. Uh, okay. All right. Well, now we're going to sign you, off Unless you give Mormonism Live $1 million. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. <laughs> Good night, everybody.